and it says we are live in typical fashion. Always got to have that, that that few minutes of I don't know if we live or not, but I'm assuming we live. Um, but welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another rousing rendition of the Brethren Podcast with uh, what we like to call the cocktail combos. And today is special because it's going to be a cocktail combo with none other than the illustrious Dr. John Mulevin, PhD, CFP. And I got a co-host with me over here in the background, uh, Miss Avery. <laughs> so, Dr. Levin, how you doing today, man? Man, I'm doing all right, man. I'm enjoying myself. I, I'm I'm enjoying the way that Miss Avery is making her presence known. The future CEO is in the building, and she is not playing games. She will be, I promise you this, she will have things running the way they're supposed to run. She is not one to be stopping. I love it, man. Hey. Uh, she knows exactly what's up. She knows it. She knows exactly when you're trying to do something. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Like clockwork. Uh-huh. Right, exactly. <laughs> there is no nap time uh-huh. <laughs> within her within her corporation. Nap time's yeah. for babies. Yeah, nap time's <laughs> for babies, which she is not. She's a big girl. Um, but yeah, like we said, cocktail combo. Today you are our guest. Um, so no pressure. You already stated off camera that you trust me. <laughs> We go, we go, we going where you driving, man. I'm eating what you cooking. I got it. Hey, exactly. But all right. in a typical bread fashion, uh, here's to a wonderful conversation. Bread being dropped and crumbs being picked up. Cheers. Cheers. But so here's something. You know, we we me you and Destin. Shout out to Destin Wells, our other illustrious colleague. He uh he had an appearance. On a, on a on a local show in, in Delaware, I forgot what the name was. Was it Community Crossfire? I think. I think that was the name I, of I, it. I remember um, C's. That sounds yeah. Sounds yeah. Just go to the Bridge Podcast series uh, Facebook page. That's B R E A D R E N, much like my shirt says. Uh, and there you can also find the link to get a shirt much like this. It comes in several uh, nice colors to match your tone. Um, but we got the clip up up there. Uh, he did a, an amazing job. He even gave us both a shout out, Doc. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, much love for that. Man, he he never stops plugging us, man. Hey, That's, never does. Never yeah, does. Real friend. Yeah. Um, but me and you and Destrian, we we've had at this point, you know, dozens upon dozens of conversations uh, about certain subjects, but people have never really heard about us and you know that was never the point for us doing this uh at all but i think now would be a good time where we can kind of uh, do that because there's a lot of things on the horizon i won't say or foreshadow but there are a lot of things on the horizon where people need to know the man behind a lot of these things so the first question that comes to my mind immediately just even me knowing you is not even the beginning fast forward to you going deciding that you want to get a phd because we, me and you have, in, and we've talked. You didn't know that you were the first black uh, to to get a, a a PhD in financial planning. But what made you want to get a PhD in financial planning? Yeah. Oh man, that's a that's actually a pretty good question. And the funny thing is, it didn't start out with me wanting to get a PhD in financial planning because when I first started thinking about a PhD, it didn't exist. And so I was an economics major and a math minor at 
Morehouse. And I did pretty well in, in my courses uh, overall, but I did real well in my economics courses. And a gentleman by the name of Dr. John Handy recommended this American Economics Association summer program to me. And the program was geared towards students who might have an interest in doing a PhD in economics when they got finished with their undergrad studies. And so I went to that program. It was in Austin. And I want to say the year it was 1998. Right. And so I went, th- I went there and I was like, okay, let's hear what they have to say. Uh, program was rigorous. I should say that because it was like, okay, there was going to be a lot of work and it was during the summer. I had never taken summer classes before. I've always been a a good student. So I never had summer school through all my primary years and Morehouse was really set up for us to do fall and spring, not really summer. So I didn't, I'd never taken a summer class. Summer was for break and I worked to get money, but this would pay me to go to school, man. If, you know, I, I got in there and I, and I, would have been able to do all of the work if I if I had wanted to. Like all of the stuff was well within my abilities. I'm just setting you setting this up because I want to I want to be clear with everybody. I did not perform in that program the way that I should have because early on in the program they had a uh, a mixer where they started to talk about the financial opportunities that were available to people who got PhDs in economics. And the the number that stuck out to me, which was confirmed and often repeated by the other people was, yeah, man, when you get done, you'll make about $50,000 starting off. And I was like, bird, $50,000. People were coming out in 1998. Uh, shout out to a bunch of my friends with Son Garth at, uh, at Morehouse. He was doing pharmaceutical sales. And he was making more than that with an undergraduate degree. And at that time, I can only stress to you how, uh, how materialistic I had, I was thinking because I was on the track team for, uh, which gave me meals and books and I had a scholarship for all of my tuition and then fees were, were separate and they had to be paid. But other than that, all the money that I made for anything I did came from me working and came from me cutting hair and that type of stuff. Right. So I was hustling all of the time. And so money was super duper important to me. And so um, the fact that it didn't seem like there was enough money in it made me write off the whole idea of doing a PhD in general. Um, and so I didn't perform well in the program. I got the money from the deal. I think they fixed the program later. We're like, if you don't perform in the first half, you don't get the second half of the money because of me, because I was chilling so hard in Austin and just basically kicking it um, and halfway showing up to class and all that, man. It was, it was an incredible um, opportunity that I think I learned some things about myself, but sort of wasted in terms of what I could have gotten out of it um, because I was I was focused differently at that time. Fast forward to actually working in business and working in banking, I recognized that that love for answering questions was still within me. That's why Dr. Handy pointed me towards that program in the first place. And then the the uh, senior year was when we had our doctrines class and he pointed me towards uh, this book called uh, Black Wealth, White Wealth by Melvin Oliver and Thomas Shapiro. And it dived into all of the, the wealth issues in America and the wealth gap and how much of the, the uh, problems that we see in criminal justice and, um, and every all of the stuff that I looked at and said, man, this is where black people are in a in, at a major disadvantage, health outcomes, all of this. 
if you used wealth as an explanatory instead of race, it would take away all of the statistical power that race held and the negative things that happened to black people. And for me, I always connected the idea of economics and well-being, even as a little kid. And so I was, it, it fascinated me to the point that it, it was always with me. And so even as I was in corporate finance, I was always thinking about, you know, how to do things to become wealthy and also black people and wealth in general. My father's a financial advisor and has been since the 80s. And so I watched him work with families and I watched how wealth transformed the way that they interacted with the system that was all around us. And so for me, um, when I finally decided to move from the more corporate side of finance to the uh, side of finance that was uh, was personal, I was actually moved and I, I took the series seven, 66 and all of that type of stuff to move towards working as a financial uh, as a financial consultant is what they were called at LaSalle Bank. Um, I would dig into the products. I would dig into the product knowledge. I would dig into understanding how you would, you know, have what made a quality financial plan, the insurances and the way that you that you structure things. I would talk, you know, a lot of times people will write off wholesalers when they come. The wholesalers are the people who are tasked with selling the products to the financial advisors who are the end users. Well, I would exhaust the wholesalers. Other people would, would uh, ignore them, not me. I was trying to find out everything that made this product tick so I could understand how to use it, right? And so I would study things in a way that other financial advisors, even ones that have been in the business longer, started asking me questions about how to use certain things. And that right there led me to believe like, man, you should be able to study this in school. You should be able to know how to help people with their finances, learn about it in school, and then be able to execute it when you get out there in the world. But I didn't see any programs that were like that until I did an internet search in like 2003. And I did PhD because I knew from the conditioning from the other professor, from Dr. Handy talking to me about this is what uh, an academician does. And this is how, um, this is how, um, how curriculums created and all the rest of this type of stuff. He spent a lot of time really sewing into me as a professor. That's, that's something that you don't necessarily get at, at other schools, but at Morehouse, if you show interest, they meet that reciprocated and, and give you far more. Right. And so I, um, it stuck with me. And when I found a PhD program at Texas tech, which at that time was number one, right? Cause it was the only one that was out there in terms of CFP, CFP um, uh, approved programs that I knew about at all. I, I applied and, or excuse me, well, no, I, yeah, I applied in 2004. And by 2005, I was down there in Lubbock, Texas, from Chicago, Illinois to Lubbock, Texas, my friend. Um, that was the first time I actually saw uh, tumbleweed outside of a cowboy movie. Like I saw tumbleweed when I, when I visited uh, <laughs> like flowing outside of the airport. And I was like, okay, this is a very different place from Chicago, Illinois, man. I, I, uh, <laughs> and, and so when I visited, I saw the passion that the professors had for it. I saw that they, you know, uh, had deep ties to financial planning as, as an industry and knew it um, inside out, knew the people. And, and financial planning too, and talked about it, man, and sold the program to me. 
And at that time, I think I've told you and others before, there were other Black people who already were uh, engaged in the overall program. Oscar Solis, he's a professor over at uh, West Texas A&M University. great guy. He was at the program when I got there. So I, you know, I kept people think, oh, well, you walk into a place and you're the only one. No, that was not my situation. It may have been more of his because he was in the program. He's actually um, Black and Latino. But um, for me, I I saw him. I met him. Nicest guy you'll ever meet, former football player. Um, I just happened to finish first. You know, that was, that's how I became the first Black PhD um, in financial planning. But I was not the first one to start the program. And so, you know, the, uh, the, but the reason that I'm into it or went to, went to it in the first place was because of how professors saw something in me and specifically Dr. Handy and cultivated that and, and did it in such a way that, I, you know, even years later, I never forgot it, man. And still, I remember all the things. This stuff pops up, man. HBCUs are a funny place. It's just the things that they do to you and do for you that just are different than, you know, having experienced the majority of PWI, a predominantly white institution versus the institutions that were made for us and made for cultivating greatness in us. When you have people like Dr. Handy that buy into it so deeply, so deeply, in fact, like I told, <laughs> I told Dr. Handy, like, hey, next semester, um, with I don't know if I'm going to have enough money to do the things I need to do to pay pay my bills. And he said, okay, we'll figure out something. He be, he made me a research assistant for the department. And they gave me work to do. Don't get me wrong, but he gave me a gig. So I didn't have to work at Greenbrier Mall in Atlanta anymore at Kids Foot Locker. That, like, that, that right there was a transformative moment in my life. Not the Kids Foot Locker, Greenbrier. Shout out to Greenbrier Mall, ATL. Uh, <laughs> but, shout out to Greenbrier Mall. Right, man. Greenbrier Mall, the realest mall on earth. You ever ate mall chitlins? It's a spot called This Is It that served chitlins at the mall. And it was called This Is It which is something that you might say if you eat mall chitlins. Hey, now. look, if you've been to Atlanta, you know about this. <laughs> but yeah, man, so so he, he I had a, a, a research assistantship and a teaching, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a tutoring-like uh, deal that he, he gave me money that matched what I would have made at Kids Foot Locker. So for my senior year, I was able to just do track, just do school. Like, they t- he took care of me. And when I think about what I can do as a professor, I I hold myself to that standard and I try to meet it. And I don't know if I ever will be as great as he was at uh, meeting the needs of students. Maybe maybe later I'll I'll learn more techniques and be you know be able to to do it. But I do my best, man. And that's the standard that you learn from an HBCU like Morehouse. So. Most definitely, we're gonna we 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 we're gonna touch on the HBCU aspect because you know me and DJ obviously we went to Tuskegee, went to Morehouse, um, so we we definitely gonna touch on that aspect. But you mentioned something um, in the beginning about your, your your dad being a financial advisor uh, since like the eighties. Uh, so you 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 grew up watching watching him. What what do you think is like the biggest piece of watching his interactions or just you know whatever you knew about his interactions? that you you bring into what you what you personally do now yeah well he is a first first things first larry lovin is a problem solver and so 
you will, you know, you will see that he is very curious because he's trying to catch all of the moment moving parts. And so if you have a conversation with him, even just what would normally feel like a casual conversation, it starts to feel invasive after a while because he asks so many questions and the question to go off of another question. That's, I tell you, he's like Columbo. He said, one more question, ma'am. He just keeps going. Just no more, one more question to the point. Sometimes if you're not, you know, if you don't know that he's uh, in your corner and trying to help you, you almost feel like, you know, people start to get defensive after a while. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. Well, why, is he, why is he asking this? But then when he starts to talk to you about trying to help you and diagnose what the issues are and trying to, now he's gotten so much of the information that he can, he can give you something that he feels comfortable saying, these are the tools that, can you, that you can use to uh, better your situation. And so he, you know, he was always calling it hey this is this is sales he'll tell you it this this is sales it's mm-hmm. about knowing your client and all the rest of that but if you look at what he calls sales versus what other folks call sales usually they're talking about making a person buy a product he's talking about diagnosing a situation and the products themselves are merely the tools that you use to alleviate whatever issues exist and so that is far more like the idea of what financial planning looks like when you're doing it right now. And so he calls it sales, but other people now they'd be kind of offended if you say, well, you're in a sale. No, that's not what I do. But, you know, he'll tell you that a doctor's in sales. He'll tell you that anybody that has that's responsible for driving revenue, that person is in sales. You know, you got to get more clients through. You got to, but see what he's discounting is the fact that his process is is pulling out all of the information and he's analyzing it just like any com- any computer program would and he's getting to where it is that you need to go he's asking questions that no software asks he'll see avery playing over there and he's like oh okay now if avery wasn't your child like if that was your niece and nephew other folks that's not on the on the form they're not looking for it how often is she over here Oh yeah. Well, who's is she? Well, okay. Well, how they related to you? Because now at the end of the whole thing, he'll mess around and be like, okay, well, you may need to have a, um, an insurance policy on, uh, if this was your cousin's child, why? Because if your cousin passes away, there's a decent likelihood because you know how we do that child that's been staying there ends up there. Right. And so he is he is diving a lot deeper than the questions that we would teach you in a class to ask. But he knows people and he knows the families. And so when you operate that way and you meet the needs and you use the correct tools, what happens is you end up serving people very well and they end up becoming successful. And that's the other thing that I've noticed is just, man, the people who do what he says come out ahead. And that's what should be the problem. I mean, that should be, that's the proof in the pudding of anything that you're doing, right? Is when people win by doing what you say. People think Bill Belichick is a great coach because they, the, the Patriots win, right? If the Patriots stay losing, you know, as great as Tom Brady and the team, that wouldn't matter. Everybody right. would think Bill Belichick was a weak coach because his teams don't win. So you have him doing all of the right things and you're getting the right outcome. And so with, when you're doing those things, especially when you start talking about uh, working with a largely black 
population, which his book of business has, you know, is, is mostly black. And you're talking to a person like me who has that underlying interest in building black wealth as a means of making our experience in this country better than it is and improving our lot based on the, the researched issues associated with wealth and race and, and the negative outcomes you have. You can see how eventually I get to the spot that I am in terms of, uh, in terms of thinking of our cultivating wealth as, as one of the things that's going to, uh, going to push black people ahead in life in general in this country. So. Most definitely. So you, you, you also hit on another point about you know, like the, the underlying, but for us, for us, especially now, and as of late, lately with, with our group, it's kind of like the overlying, the underlying it's, it's laying on top of it. It's covering it like a tarp of just, you know, financial literacy, uh, generational wealth, uh, you know, just, just changing the mindset of, of how people talk about uh, and relate to finance because it's one of those things. It's like legal and finance are like those two, the like Achilles heels for our community where it's just like, you know, it's, it's a, it, math and math and like, there's like a legal is a lot of reading and understanding. Math is a lot of reading and understanding and then mathing uh, with, with finance. And it's just one of those things that kind of has, you know, that that's that that dark cloud above 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 our uh, our culture and our society. Mm-hmm. Huh? Yeah, it's on the couch. Go get it. Yeah, my co-host <laughs> is asking random questions, but um, um, but you know, like you said, it's it's been, it's been this overline is overline for us now, where that's our goal. Um, and it's kind of weird because we always talk about it, kind of mention it, how, how all of that has aligned between all three of us. Shout out to DJ as well. He he, he watching us. Um, you can hop on if you want to, DJ. We didn't exclude you. I just wanted to give yeah, you a break. Yeah, man. <laughs> he, 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 thought you, he, he thought com- you couldn't come, man. Yeah, like, he, he commented on the video like, hi, guys. Like, oh. <laughs> like he wait, like he on the outside. Where- well, welcome in. Welcome like- <laughs> in, Destrian. I'm certain, that, I'm certain that there's a cup of Hennessy waiting on you. Just, you know, you come on in when you got time. Exactly. You know, exactly. Love to have you. Uh, but I, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been this overlying, it's, it's, it's one of the goals and one of the reasons why, um, we all agreed to come and start doing this podcast where we take a different approach to, cause we don't, we don't look at it and we don't do it in teaching. Like when we talk, we don't go in with the goal of, okay, Dr. Love is about to give this presentation on how to work your finances, right? We kind of just have these general conversations and, you know, kind of, you know, I always like finish off with tangibles one or two steps of like two or three steps of like what to do, what can I do? Like, cause we hear, we hear and see it a lot of, you know, a lot of people preaching out theories and things like, okay, this is how to save money better than that. And it's like, okay, so what, what should I do first? Like, okay, do this. There's your pink eye pad right there. You're going to make me have to do a lot of editing. Eh? I'm going to have to cut a lot of stuff out because you interrupt. <laughs> Purple iPad is on the bed. On the bed. Go look on the bed. Jeez. <laughs> I love kids, man. Come on. Hey, look, you gotta, I, you look, gotta I, know that this is this is gold, man. Hey, no, at, this, look, at, this, at this point, at this point, I I know it because it's because I'm doing something. Now, as soon as we're done, <laughs> I'm gonna sit on the couch. She'll probably go lay in the middle of the floor and be quiet for three hours and say not a word to me. 
Yeah. I'll say, hey, do you want to play? No. But right now, because I'm doing something, she wants to be here. You want to come? You want to come join me now? Yeah. Okay, come on, we can join me. Okay. All right. All right. Oh, all right. So you're gonna help me co-host? Okay. So we're gonna ask Doctor Levin some questions. All right. She has instantly right. upped how many people will tune into this, man? I promise you, like, like our viewership is gonna triple. But always remember. But always remember, the great actors always say, "I don't work with kids. I don't work with adults." Oh, I, I, I know full well that I have now become. I have now become second billing now that she's here. <laughs> Look right. This is this is her cocktail combo. Right, exactly. Um, we gonna we gonna try to work through this. All right. So we were we with the with with our goal of financial literacy and, and all of that. Because the, the thing we've mentioned it before, me and you have never actually met in person. It's true. We 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 have we were we were mutually introduced through Destrian because you all was business dealing and me and Destrian knowing each other personally and and business dealings. And to the point where now we we all own business ventures together. We work together. We do this. Um, but when it came to aligning, align the alignment of you know what we go, because especially with you and Destrian and you all being in the financial industry uh, on both sides and and being on multiple sides, because like you said, like you said, you worked in you know in the bank, uh, being a financial advisor. Now you're a professor and you're a certified financial planner and you're a PhD in financial planning. And you own a consulting firm, and all of the other things that you that you got under your under the large umbrella of loving. Uh, uh, but when it came, how how, what about this about the financial literacy portion? Um, because a lot of people don't really see the need. Now, the way I the way I frame it is, your your upbringing and your your background wouldn't necessarily warrant you to see to actually you know i guess see the need for it yeah you know yeah. where it's like you know if you like i can you know i can i i always recognize my, my slight privilege i grew up in a house with both of my parents uh both of my parents work my mother you know we got everybody everybody in my college in my, a lot of people in my family are college educated and things of that nature so it's like I may, I may not necessarily see the need uh to go out and do it because it was you know kind of already given to me but like in your situation where you grew up, you, your, your father was a financial advisor, uh, you know, you the part about undoing, undoing what, what, what the wrong has been done in terms of financial literacy. When did that hit you that that was what you really needed to do? Like because of, you know, seeing beyond your own situation, knowing like there are people who are not like me at all. And those are the people who do desperately need the help. And I'm, and I'm, I'm definitely going to be one of the people to do that. Yeah, well, you know, working with, talking to my dad, you get the stories of triumph, but you also get the stories of trial, right? And the problem is he, he would talk to me about the mistakes that folks were making and how much that we really didn't know. And sometimes, you know, the people who think they know, you have uh, people who are successful in, in terms of income, but in terms of, uh, in terms of wealth, they weren't successful at all. They had no wealth. And I think that income orientation is one that we see a lot of times among black families, right? If I have a job in my, uh, my, at the end of the month, 
I have more money that's come in, the money that had to go out, then everything's cool. And, you know, back in the day when they had, when, when pensions were more prevalent, then folks could be actually okay, right? You just go ahead and you manage your immediate finances. And then uh, when you got ready to retire, you had your pension and you were fine. Well, there's been a transition where fewer and fewer companies are offering pensions. You got more and more people that you actually have to have some wealth put aside in terms of a, uh, you know, in terms of using your 401ks effectively, using your long-term investments effectively, all of those things that weren't really out there at the beginning. So I always got stories about how, you know, uh, know, and never with names, he's always super professional. So you'll never know who the people are, but he's always, I got, regaled with stories about all all the time about, hey, these are the things that you do in terms of having a short-term cash reserve, a long-term liquid position, a long-term tax-preferred non-liquid positions, the forms of insurances that you need to have. And I'm using the terms that he used with me when I was a a young kid up through college and all the rest of these things. He never, ever did it differently just because different terminology came out i was able to look at the terminology that he used to talk with me about and related to uh some of the stuff that's more current in terms of what we use in um in in financial planning as the accepted terms but he always did that right and so i i never have had a point at which i could say oh i was completely disconnected at least in my adult life from the normal black experience in terms of understanding how uh, black households would benefit from financial literacy. But I will say when I was much younger um, and like middle school and up up in, in, in the beginning of high school, because I was just learning about different economic theories, I, I had uh, become in love with neoclassical economics and the mathematical um, elegance of it. And so something like trickle down economics without talking about things too technically, right? Mm -hmm. But some of the Republican talking points when I was much younger seemed a lot more plausible and correct to me because they worked out mathematically in terms of how Milton Freeman and and these people would explain them. Now, Mm -hmm. the more that I learned about the complications that, uh, that really better described the reality that we experience as Black people and the broader reality that we experience as Americans and some of the underlying assumptions that would make some of that math really elegant and beautiful, you start to see, okay, we need to be able to introduce information a little bit more efficiently into the system to make it work. It's not going to glide the way that we want it to. People are not going to uptake information as quickly, as easily as we like. There are barriers to entry. And so once you start to look at all of those things and the complexities associated with it, then you start to see, okay, things can break down. And so the more that I learned, the more that I sort of grew into I don't know that I'll call myself Keynesian. I don't know exactly how I would describe my economic You're status. A hybrid. Everything yeah, now, but everything I now understand is a hybrid. that things don't. And, and even more now, man, I have I've got a good I got a good friend who is a socialist, hardcore. You know, mm-hmm. uh, shout out D Noble, man. And he's always blowing my mind and introducing me to new things. And the reason that I'm open 
uh, especially when you're talking about just ideas in general, is I don't want to be married to any one concept. I want to be able to look at needs and have tools to meet needs. And I don't want to get married to a system, period. Bruce Lee, when you're talking about when when talking about martial arts, said systems, these rigid systems, they they cage us. Right. Be like water. When when water is poured in the cup, water becomes the cup. When it when it's heated, it, it becomes steam. It moves. It drives. It can go through rock. It can go over rock. It can go under rock. It, it like that's that's how we need to be able to live uh, financially, and so and how we move in general. And with my name being Ajamu, I've been uh, you know a martial artist pretty much my whole life. But the only thing my mom has never refused me is any sort of boxing, martial arts lesson ever, like wrestling, anything like that. I guess she figures you can't name a person. I'll, he fights for what he wants and then deny him the <laughs> opportunity him to learn how to do it, right? So right. she was always uh, encouraging me to learn how to do these types of things. I, I didn't even know, but my grandfather was a boxer in the army. Uh, so everyone, when you see on Veterans Day, when I post that picture, Cullen, Cullen Jesse Loving, mm-hmm. light-skinned guy, and his eyebrows look just like mine. Like it's like this part of his face looks like me. But uh, he was a, he was a boxer, uh, and they called him Dirty Red. He like one of the funniest people you, you like always cussing, chewing tobacco. And if you ever sat, at that's where you, that's where truck, you got that's where you got champ from. Oh uh, yeah, man, he spit that tobacco out. You had to watch yourself, man, because if you're sitting right behind, you get that whiplash of the tobacco coming out of, <laughs> out of the truck and hit you in the face. Uh, but um, my point is that uh, I, I've I've had family in all sorts of ways talk to me and describe different parts of the human condition just in general. And I've had a family that's encouraged me to learn and try to give me all of the tools necessary to, to get ahead and to satisfy my both my intellectual curiosity and, and all of the things that I needed. I've been very fortunate because people have looked out for me. And you know, I always say how people are more important than things, but that that's what it's about. It's just recognizing that they have put into me um, so much. And so whatever it is that you see that you look at and you're like, man, that guy has it together. I promise you, it wasn't because I came like that. Right. Mm. It was it was all cultivated in me. People at the church, people like (laughs) like all around me who who, you know, corrected behavior when they saw me going the wrong way, supported behavior when they saw me going the right way, taught me things, taught, gave me a work ethic, pushed me when I needed pushing, slowed me down when I needed to be slowed down. Folks took care of me. Black women specifically took care of me. That's why people, people will always be like, you hard on brothers? No, I just know that brothers can be great. But I have a personal debt of gratitude that I feel every day to black women. And so, you know, I'm always going to to be not just in their corner, but uh almost sometimes people can say you're a little bit extra about it. Hey man, I if you found I mean, something look, that was great, if you found something that was great, look, you it, as for, for all it, for all black men, based on what, what little bit I know about science, it came from one. That's just what I know. Yeah. Now if you was made in a lab and grown in a petri dish. 
I don't know nothing about that, and I think you should tell people about that because that seems like that should be classified information. <laughs> but all, um, hey, I love I love all people and, and women of all backgrounds are great, but black women specifically pushed and, uh-huh. and, and put so much into me and black black men too. But just you know, as a young kid, a lot of times you you just really are surrounded yeah. by and taken care of by women in lots of ways, and I. I have a good enough memory to appreciate that and love them for it. So well, I, I mean, the best folks, I can, you know, bro. <laughs> I'm not perfect. For most of us, for most of us, it's it's almost like uh, the black women were like the front lines, yeah, and the 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 men were like the reinforcement. Uh, you know, because what eighty ninety percent of our teachers were, you know, depending on where you went to school, was black women. When we got to HBCU. It's a bunch of black women. You got your, you got your, you got your solid male professors that were the majority were going to be black women. The lunch lady that took care of you and let you in the calf when you didn't have no points on your card, black woman. <laughs> the financial aid secretary who looked out for you and told you how to do things right, black woman. Yeah. You know the yeah. dean, the dean, the secretary to the dean who told you the ways to you know find a scholarship or to find the, you know whatever you needed, find the work study, black woman. So you know, I you know, I'm I'm definitely one of those people who understands that that point of view and that standpoint. And uh, for most for for most black men, it, it should if you don't know that, it should be a very uh, quick realization. If you just sit down and just think back real quick, you think back to yesterday, and you probably understand. Dang, yeah. it's really it's really that it's really that 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 deep to where it should be that you know you're always an advocate uh, for them. Man, I understand our frustrations as as black people. But what I will never understand is is brothers who point the finger at sisters as the source of our difficulties in this country. You know, they that's not I I, I think that's unfair. You know, but you know as, we talked about it the the uh the, what the last the last the last show whatever we talked about how division is you know division is really this tantalizing thing now. Yeah, it is, man. It, it's not. It's sex don't even sell like that no more. Division sell like you'd be the. You know, from elections to television, yeah. everything is, you know, the pol- political elections look like boxing matches, like pay-per-view boxing matches now. So it's, yeah, man. division is really where where you can sell. It's like you pick a side and we'll make t-shirts about it and y'all go buy the t-shirt, figure it out. Even though left Twix and right Twix. <laughs> like, what's that wrong with Twix? Yeah, twi- Twix, Twix is... <laughs> Twix, it came from twin. They supposed to be the same. Twix, they, beef, not look, like, Twix, like nah, funny, let's fight sell. left Twix versus right Twix. Right. Let's go buy these t-shirts to yeah. figure out which which one you choose. And, and you know, um, shout out to Joseph M. Charles. He's in the comments. He he got a question. They're not really what we're talking about, but he said he uh he always wanted the opportunity to put some money in the seeding businesses for partial ownership to go long term, kind of like Shark Tank. Any thoughts on how to find opportunities like that? Um. I know there's a couple of, you know, like sites based on and you you and Destry know more about that because of uh, one of the financial rules passed with the SEC during the Obama administration where we're, you're now able to make uh, ser- well, I think it's Series A investments. What is it called? You know what I'm talking about? Where like you're talking about the kick- alternative investments, alternative events like Kickstarter and uh, where you can do like uh, the first round of like. Yeah, angel investment. investing and yeah, yeah. And I as mean, long as you don't, as long as you're not using more than what ten percent of your of your your income, you can you can invest in things now. Yeah, I, I mean there are opportunities out there. I always caution people 
when you start talking about alternative investments and we did the whole thing with the, uh-huh. with the pyramid recently, and you can go back and check out that episode. If you have some questions before you start to really look into doing these things that can help you maybe hit a home run, I'd encourage you to make sure that you have all of the bases covered in terms of your short-term cash re- reserve, uh, the you know, meeting the, the goals that you have out there in terms of having the tools in place for those among like the, the more, uh, uh, they're not as sizzly, the mutual funds, right? The ATS, right. all they no, look boring and all that. And it's only 7%, 8% a year. Let it work for you and see how it goes. Do it over time and see how yeah. well those boring strategies work, right? When you talk about, the, I talk about my, my dad and having 30 years in, I, I've, I've watched him talk with, with folks who had nothing when they started, some of them had pretty good jobs and now they have seven, $8 million and mm. never made, you know, if you all oh, well, if you got seven, $8 million, you probably make, no, he's making 400,000 now. You see what I'm saying? And nobody right. would, I, I could, I could throw, I could throw 7,000 rocks at people making $400,000 now, <laughs> you know, almost never hit one. This guy seven, eight million. Right. Right. It just, you know, just talking about folks in general. Why? Because everybody thinks, oh, you know, getting wealthy is about doing something quick right now. No, man, it's about putting together a strategy that you can follow for the long term and sticking to it and doing that boring, mundane thing, um, acquiring and and accumulating shares over time and allowing those things to increase in value doing things that are likely to be productive and continuing to do those things, cutting out the things that are harming you on in terms of getting where you want to go or minimizing the harm that can come from those things. Those things are the ones that will end up getting you further ahead. And so um, I don't have any specific alternative uh, alternative sort of platforms that I uh, am willing to recommend on air. And I'm not saying that they don't have a place in, uh, in anybody's overall financial plan. They may very well have a place in yours. I would just say, you know, make sure we have all of these other meat and potatoes things handled before you you move into those. I think a lot of times you can see that sizzle and feel like, man, that's where I need to be. But if you have all of the other things handled and can afford to be there, then it will be a lot more of a comfortable experience than right. it would be if you're trying to, you know, the the ties the ties get flat on the car, and now you're trying to sell an alternative investment to pay right. for things that you should have your short term cash reserve uh, set up for. So, and like you said, we talked about it on that. Uh, we did we did a show like what like a week or two ago, so you can go check that out mm-hmm. on. Uh, on our Facebook page. Yeah. And cause we talked about that. Cause we talked about how a lot of people, especially now because of the sizzle, as you call it, people are building a pyramid from the top down. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the wrong way to do it. They, they lead with speculative and alternative investments versus really getting that foundation, you know, where, like you said, what are the things that are a little bit more, not a little bit more, a lot more consistent uh, in terms, you know, inflation is running about 4.25%. Last I remembered, so if you got something that's giving out seven, eight percent, you're doing pretty good. But you know, that's just my limited knowledge. Yeah, and, and I mean four point two five percent is a recent run up um in terms of in terms of overall uh 
in inflation and, and things are getting more expensive, but also the market is moving in a positive direction. It's not as though, um, you know, one thing is happening and, and the others aren't. I think it's, I think you just have to be very careful about, uh, about following the sizzle um, it, it, instead of doing the things that you need to do to make sure that the sizzle is not so important to you, right? If you have all of your stuff in order, you look at Warren Buffett, he'd never even, all of the companies that he invests in are boring, right? None of, none of them are doing anything besides stuff that is material work that you'd see done in the way that Americans live their normal lives now. And he buys them at a bargain and he sells them at some point, uh, probably uh, b- before many of us would, but he just recognizes, okay, I'm doing meat and potato stuff, companies that are strong with cash flow and, um, and, and they're doing business that, uh, that is not likely to go out of bu- go business selling shavers, insurance, all the rest of that type of stuff. Do that. And then, you know, right now they happen to have taken a hit in price and he takes them through it and it goes on to the next one. They're not all 100% winners in terms of what he does, but he wins more than he loses. And I think that if you have that type of calm old man attitude, <laughs> rather than trying to do, uh, you know, do so much so quickly, you're, you're, you're far more likely to be successful. You're far more likely when you lead with the goals that you have and then figure out the tools that are more likely to get you to where you are, to where you want to go. Then if you have some money that you don't feel like spending still, after you have set yourself up to meet those goals, you can feel comfortable doing some additional investing that might be more risky because you covered your bases. You put yourself in a position where you're likely to win and you're not going to have to go there to do something. You lock yourself in a bad strategy because you plan and with money that you should have been serious with. Mm-hmm. You yeah. Um, you mentioned it earlier and I said we would come back to it. The HBCU uh, mm-hmm. experience. Uh, Going to Morehouse, and we, 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 me, like I said, me and, me and Destra, we graduated uh, from Tuskegee, another illustrious uh, HBCU. But I actually like how did your dad influence, you know, what you do now? And you, you, you already kind of alluded and mentioned to your uh, Dr. Handy that had a, a vast impact on, you know, you know, your decisions and the way you moved and, I, and even, you know, keeping you in school at some point. Because who knows, you know, how things would have turned out if you weren't, if you weren't, if you weren't, you know, given that opportunity. And, you know, a lot of people can, you know, have went through very similar experiences at HBCUs. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of HBCUs where you really get that that environment where it's like you can go to this person who looks like you, who you know for a fact, not all the time because they're hard on you. So you realize they don't care, but they, they really do care about you. So you can go to them with the comfort of saying, I have a problem. And knowing that nine times out of nine, they're gonna they're gonna care about it and do their best to get uh, you know to give you a you know to help you solve that solve that problem and get a solution with it. Um, and every HBCU's got those people, and that's the thing. Like there's there's a plethora of those people throughout the campus. You know, I, you know, I don't know how it goes at those other schools, but I imagine you might you know, you might end up with one or two people you can go to. But at HBCU, it's like you walk into any door, even the person who you don't think has any pool to do anything. Some kind of way figures out, you know, some figures out something's like, oh, I thought you was just a secretary. It's like, no, nah, I know where the money is. Here you go. Um, but 
going going to an HBCU and that that experience, um, what pieces from that do you think that you drew from and you draw from and, and you've implemented it into you know the way that you move and things that you do now? Yeah, I think I recognize the importance of building and having institutions, right? And people are more important than things, but you have to have the right structure within those uh, those um, institutions so that those people can operate in a way to help the folks that, uh, that, that need to be helped. And so when you look at HBCU specifically, they were designed for us with all of the hardships that Black families have in mind when they uh, when they conceived of Morehouse, when when uh, they conceived of Tuskegee, Hampton, all of these places, they were trying to meet the needs of the local Black people there. And so they knew that they'd have financial needs. They knew that there would be deficiencies in terms of certain uh, parts of education. And instead of talking about uh, these things as though they were exceptions, they implemented them to make sure that they were that, that they were integral as a part of the way in which they operated. And so when I think about the way that I conceive of and discuss financial planning and um, talk to people who are, who are black or who are Latino, I'm looking at the specific issues that they have. I'm not, when, when, white, when black people started going to schools like university of Alabama, even Texas tech, where I got my PhD, um, all of these places, they allowed uh, black folks to be there. They, you, there were exceptions made to get you to allow you to be there. This, um, these HBCUs, they were made for you and with you in mind, and tailored to you and the issues that you might have because of the place from which you came. There's a huge difference there. And so when I think about financial planning and, and finance and the issues of Black uh, people and uh, other uh, underrepresented minorities in this country, I now recognize more the importance of building institutions so that we can be set up to meet the needs of the people that we know are there and not asking from the outside for them to make exceptions for us and include us in in certain discussions if we have mechanisms by which we can start to make effect we can work in concert with those other institutions that are like-minded out there but it's difficult to take a place that was designed to meet the needs of rural white men in west texas and say a young guy from Chicago is going to have his needs equally met in that same structure. But if I go to a place like Morehouse, oh, they've always had to have some smart, you know, you go back to those first black and white photos, they had kids from, and it was probably mostly Georgia and, and surrounding regions at that time, but also folks from, uh, from, from places uh, up north too, right? And, yeah. and so they've always had to meet the needs of these people and they've structured it as such and so we need to make sure that we're intentional about structuring mechanisms to provide for the future wealth and well-being of our country as black folks the same way that these other outside structures have uh, provided for and in some cases attacked our well-being right and we have to preserve those structures that we have and improve those structures you, you know there's no uh, suggestion 
you know, you get ruins. You have very nice, beautiful parts of, of Rome and parts of Mexico that uh, once during civilizations long ago were probably the most beautiful thing that you've seen in that region, but they weren't, they weren't kept up. They weren't refreshed. They weren't updated. They weren't made co- completely relevant going forward. And what happens is they stop being relevant and eventually they stop being used at all and they become relics. And that's how you get ruins. And ruins are just places that used to be great and folks stop taking care of them because people didn't see the reasoning for them. I think people are now seeing the reasoning for and understanding the importance of HBCUs, understanding the importance of having institutions within the Black community to forward our causes, to make sure that we are looked after in this country. And all of these other groups also have institutions that do the same thing. It would be great if we could say all we do is move as Americans, but that's not how it operates. We have to be able to, uh, you know, get people to buy in to what it is that that it will be better for all of us, but probably more acutely affects some of us. Well, we need to be able to express that to people who are uh, who are sympathetic and like minded and understand that. Um, The condition of America depends on the positive condition of Black folks and the positive condition of Latino folks and the positive condition of Asian folks and the positive condition of individuals in the LGBTQ community, right? All of these people are America and all of the needs that they have need to be seen to. And we can't just make allowances within our institutions for them. It's important that they have institutions that can, can work with one right. another and you know, with the other prevailing, uh, a lot of larger predominantly white institutions. So that everybody can start to see the value of what it is that each of us brings, man. So. Most definitely. And with, with, with that point, I think that's a, a good, a good stopping point for us. Uh, <laughs> it feels like we besides, just got started. <laughs> I, I know. I know, because I, look, you know me, you know me and you could, I could sit here and ask you questions for, for the next five hours. You could look. This is what we might do. We'll the do is that we'll do. No, look, this is what we'll do. We'll do a, a, a telethon. Go like forty eight hours straight and just talk. <laughs> people get nauseated and send us money to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, but besides besides our unofficial catchphrase here of yours people over things um you said something that really stuck with me so it's probably gonna end up on something is relics relics become ruins i don't know if that's you or not but i i, I like that saying and it, you know and specifically talking about our hbcus right now you know all of us know the situation that they're in and it's it's dire but then there is a, a recovering that seems to be happening happening a shift that seems to be happening where more more people are proud to, you know, go. It's almost like that nineties thing where everybody's like, yo, I'm I'm going to HBC. Like you really don't really have a choice, especially with the climate of things. So that's you know, that's something refreshing to see. Hopefully we can keep it going. And like you said, we can implement those uh those systems and structures in place that are that cater to us but don't that also don't exclude uh other people. But it, you know, it definitely has us in mind. And you know something I, I said before is if you know if I don't have no if I didn't have no parts of building the system I can't really trust it and that's just the, you know it's just the gist of it. if you you don't if you didn't have any parts in constructing it or have any say in constructing the system you can't be mad when the system don't really work for you because it probably wasn't built with you in mind yeah. but 
Doc, as always, it's a pleasure talking to you. Where can the people find you on social media? Man, I'm used to you saying that. No, uh, <laughs> Doc, <laughs> Dr. Loving on Money and You, uh, ajamuloving.com, and uh, uh, Dr. Ajamu uh, Loving on uh, Twitter. And what's my Instagram? Dr. Ajamu Loving. <laughs> Dr. Ajamu Loving, yeah. On right. Instagram. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, much of, so much of my uh, social media is handled. Uh, by Mr. A.J. Woodson. All of my website work is handled by Mr. A.J. Woodson. Um, the comment, before I let it slip, oh, loving entertainment work will be, uh, you know, we, we got some mm. things on the horizon and A.J. Woodson will be very, very material in making sure I'll all leave. of these things happen and you guys know about all of these things. But uh, the, he I'll is- I'll be very busy is, soon. Yeah, man, he's my he's my media he's my media man, and uh, and I'm and I'm happy and I'm proud to be able to work with. Him. I can't wait till we actually meet face to face at some oh, point. Look, you know, we we said we've said on the on man. recording uh, when yeah. the loving estates pool is completed. Oh yeah, man! Now you're gonna have, we're gonna have to come out there and bring up Miss Avery out retreat. there so she can tell all of us what to do. Oh, all yeah. right, most definitely. Oh man, can can you imagine your 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 uh, Listen, what she's ten? She's ten now. She, she'll be turning ten in June, man. Yeah, right. Imagine a ten-year-old ex- telling a two-year-old how to run this, how to run this game on her. Hey, man, and she got, she got, she got, she got, she got eight years of experience in the game. All I can, all I can say is, uh, good luck and blessings to all of us, man. Hey, look, that, it'll, trouble, it'll, look, it'll be like that Jeff and a little baby girl just throwing money out the window. That's, right. that's, that's what she said. <laughs> Basically. Well, yeah, man, it's it's always a pleasure talking with you. Um, and like I said, I I just wanted I wanted to to do this just because we we talk a lot about theories and subjects and and and, and topics and all of that, but we never sat down and really talk, talked about who we are. You know, we kind of allude to it. And everybody knows you got a PhD in UCFP. I, you know, I always leave it that they know that. But I wanted to give everybody kind of a little bit of background about you because um, we haven't done it. And DJ DJ up next soon to so we can get that out there especially plus when you know like you said you alluded to we got you got a lot of stuff coming man if i if i look it'll take me another 30 minutes to list out the stuff that doc got i didn't listen to i didn't listen until you asked me to i didn't really some of it i didn't even think about until you asked me that's a whole other conversation oh yeah yeah man but that you know that's one of those things where like it's almost like how you 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 said your daddy it's like you just you just dive and you dig with people until you figure it out. Cause a lot of people, especially with what I do and what, you know, what we do period in consulting is people will come to you with just like this bland idea. It's like, I want to do this. And it's like, okay, well, why, who, what, when, where, why, and how, and you got to ask those questions. And then you start pulling stuff up. They start pulling stuff out themselves. They didn't realize like, Oh, I didn't realize what my why was. Um, so, you know, but yeah, dog got a lot of stuff coming up. It's it's, it's a, it's like it's like the uh, it's like the Marvel movie list. It's like dang, twenty twenty five. Got it already blessed. <laughs> but hey, it's been a beautiful conversation. Check us out on all social media at Brethren Pod. That's B R E A D R E N. Like bread, just like the shirt say, Brethren Podcast. You can uh, you can find us on Instagram at Brethren Pod on Facebook Brethren Podcast Series. Uh, we don't have a website. Probably gonna build one soon. We'll have one. But if you go to our Instagram and our Facebook. Well, there's a link that we can purchase t-shirts to rep uh, the Brethren Podcast. We appreciate everybody for listening, as always. Um, but that's going to do it for us. Cheers. We love y'all. Ain't nothing you can do about it.
Peace.